Hi, my name's Rhoda Dakar, and you're listening to the Stateside Madness Podcast. Hi there, folks out there. I'd like you to meet Tommy McGuire's combo. Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Stateside Madness podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Polly. And am I recording? I am. Yeah. Okay. That's why we're here. All right. <laughs> I couldn't remember. I'm really having one of those days, Polly. How's it going? Uh, things are good here. Good. Nothing Nothing new or noteworthy happening over there in, uh, in Polly land? No, not so much. Okay. Well, we do have a couple items for the communicator, so should we start? Uh, let's go right for it, yeah. Okay, so first up, Polly, you remember last year during the lockdown, they had that really cool pay for access, the Get Up live show? I remember it well. Well, they're finally releasing it on a CD DVD set on November 18th, so we can own it and watch it. And the thing that's really cool about this is when they put out their press release, they actually quoted the Stateside Madness blog in their press release. And that was Donald Trull. That's our uh, webmaster. That was his review of the getup that they quoted. So that's kind of nice to get a little recognition from the band there. Uh, yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, Donald did a great job reviewing it. It was a great show. What are we calling it, actually? You know, it's a little hard to describe. So it was sort of concert, sort of sketch, sort of variety show, sort of Muppets. Uh, yeah, but it was a lovely um, production, and uh, the split second it was announced, I called up my local independent record shop, and uh, it was already posting, so they were able to order it for me. I'm anxiously awaiting my copy. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm putting it on my birthday wish list because that's just a little bit after my birthday, so couldn't be better yeah so honey if you're listening to this now you know what to get me so yes we've got a couple of birthday related announcements first up peter blake you remember peter blake the famous designer of the sergeant peppers album cover also famous at least the madness fans for designing the cover of we we cc yeah yeah da da well as it turns out mr blake is turning 90 there's going to be a celebration concert at London's Royal Festival Hall. That's going to be on the 2nd of December. So coming right up. Now, guess, Lori, who's also playing at that concert? Could it be maybe Madness? 
In fact, it is. So those of you, yes, those of you who are lucky enough to get tickets, because it's already sold out, uh, please do enjoy that. Um, The boys aren't doing a Christmas tour this year. So, hey, that's a nice concession if you're lucky enough to get there. And speaking then, of course, of the boys, well, it would be Woody's birthday, or just recently. So he turned 62 just a couple of days ago on October 19th. So, of course, happy birthday, Woody. Woody's looking absolutely fabulous. I tell you, all that clean living and uh, the exercise, I guess, of being a drummer. He looks fantastic. Keep it up, man. Yeah, he he, he probably has, you know, uh, by far uh, aged the best out of all the guys. I've noticed that that's often true of drummers in bands. I don't know if it's the, the physical activity or. I don't know. that. I, I mean, I'd have to I'd have to think. Maybe they're tapped into some kind of higher pulse in the universe or something. I don't know. Could be. All right. Well, happy birthday, Woody. Many more. All right. So, Polly, what are we talking about today? We are talking about the Three Pyramids Club. So many of you will remember that. That is Suggs's second solo album, uh, dating way back to September 7th of 1998. So we're going to talk a great deal about that. Do a little bit of deep dive on all the tracks, Lori. This album was produced by Steve Laroni of Altered Images. And Altered Images, they were you know, kind of like a new wave 80s band. They had a few modest hits. Steve Laroni also produced albums around this time for Hanson and for Black Grape. So Black Grape was Sean Ryder's band after the Happy Mondays broke up. So he's got a little bit of a pedigree here, Steve Laroni. And uh, after his first album, The Lone Ranger, Suggs kind of needed a new sense of direction in terms of what he was going to do with his solo career. And so in steps Steve Laroni. But he agreed to produce the album only if he could co-write most of the songs with Suggs. And so uh, what Laurie just said there, particularly about uh, Steve Laroni and producing Black Rape, there's uh, no wonder there. You're going to see probably a fair amount of elements that are reminiscent of Uh, Happy Mondays and the Manchester kind of scene like that. And um, yeah, which by that time, I wouldn't say had come and gone, but it was trailing a little bit. So a bit of a curious um, selection uh, for a guy who had dabbled so heavily in that scene um, as it was descendant um, at that point. But nonetheless, it did chart. Uh, It was on the UK charts, not for long, only about a week, and it only made it to number 82. The music producer Rob Dickens is called the Three Pyramids Club, a noble failure. We'll probably talk a little bit more about that with um, Lori and uh, my perspective on the album. All right. So do you want to start us off with the first track, Polly? Sure. So first up, and it's a pretty decent opener. It, of course, was written by Suggs, this time with Nick Feldman, it's I am. I am a man. I am what I am. I am a man. I am what I am. I am a man. I am what I am. I am a man. I am what I am. I am a man. I am what I am. I am a man. I am what I am. I am a man. I am what I am. I am a man. I am what I am. I am a man. I am what I am. I
and a peace of mind. Okay, then, Lori, what are your thoughts on I Am? Oh, what a great way to open the album. Nice and strong and up-tempo. I know that this was co-written by Nick Feldman of Wang Chung fame, who later went on to be a producer in his own right. Uh, it's a fun song. What do you think of it? Uh, yeah, pretty much the same thing. Um, really, that uh, sort of uh, staccato drum opening really sets the mood for it. And right from the word go, it's a very steady, very fast-paced, maybe. How about fast-paced uh, type of song? I'll give you a minute there to edit that. Oh, you think I'm going to edit that? Oh, yeah, that's sure. Cute. That's cute. Uh, so right from the beginning, uh, yeah, very fast-paced, very up-tempo song. And uh, yeah, and no wonder it would play well in a movie. So did we talk about the Avengers? No, yeah, we haven't talked about that yet. So 1998, there was a movie called The Avengers. Now, this is not Marvel's Avengers. This is the Avengers based on the old English uh, spy show, I guess, with uh, Mrs. Peel, right? They approached Suggs and they said, we would like to use this song, I Am, in the soundtrack of this movie. But if we're going to agree to that, you have to re release this as a single. So that was the agreement. So it was released as a single on September 5th, 1998, predated the album a little bit. Now, I was reading up on this because there's a few different accounts of this. I think it was Rob Dickens, who's a longtime friend and collaborator of Suggs. He had said that he saw the movie and he didn't hear the song until maybe like 10 seconds of the closing credits. They actually play the song. And at first he was really disappointed about that. But then when the reviews for this movie came in, so this was Sean Connery, Ralph Fiennes and Uma Thurman, you think great cast, this is going to be sensational. And I mean, it won all kinds of raspberry awards. It was really a bomb. So Suggs and his people were actually kind of counting their blessings at that point, that it really was not heavily associated with the movie because the movie, the movie stunk pretty bad. Yeah, that it did. Um, I remember seeing it and thinking, yeah, pretty much. Why bother? I may not have made it all the way to the Sug song appearing in the credits. No, you bolted out of the theater before that? <laughs> Probably, yeah. But, you know, Uma Thurman did look really, really good in that skin-tight ensemble that she was wearing. So, I mean, it, it's not without its good points. But, but yeah, so it was, uh, again, this, I think this was the only single actually released from the album, Polly. Okay, you're 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 nodding, but then you're making a weird face. So I'm not saying anything. Yeah. Okay. So we're not sure, but that's what we think. All right. Shall we move on to the next song? I think we should. What is it? Well, this is called So Tired, and it was written by Suggs with Steve Laroni. Stop rain. 
So that was so tired. How do you like that one, Polly? Uh, I like it a great deal. And um, I like when they do placement. Uh, they're thoughtful about placement like that. If you divide an album up into thirds, uh, just like you would a play or a movie, you want the first third, first act uh, being really, really strong. And I think they do that really, really well with this album. Um, the tempo doesn't drop significantly um, and it really, you know, keeps the energy up. And I think you're going to find that through the first three or four songs on this album. So good on them. Very strong effort. And our notes are pretty much in alignment. I'm reading, for those of you at home, I'm reading off of Lori's notes right now. And I happen to have a few scribbled down. And we both say it's very reminiscent of the Happy Mondays. And it is. It totally is. Yeah, I was really surprised. I think the first time I heard this, because this really was a departure from what I was accustomed to with Suggs, right? I mean, there's a lot of samples in this. Guitars, but not, I mean, obviously Madness had guitars, right? We had Chrissy Boy. But the way the guitars are used in this is more... Um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but yeah. So I wrote happy Mondays in big letters here. So it makes sense. You know, Steve Laroni having produced black grape would, you know, kind of latch onto that kind of style, but it's kind of fun to hear Suggs experimenting with it, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's uh, let's face it. Pop that, you know, by that time was, um, you know, well in, within Mattis's wheelhouse, essentially a five or six piece band, rock ensemble doing pop. Madness had done that really, really well. You move over to uh, Primal Scream, Happy Mondays, bands like that, doing not a completely dissimilar thing, you know? So this isn't the difference between Icelandic and, um, you know, uh, Thai food. You know, this is these things are pretty, pretty similar. So it's, it's uh, experimental in that he's doing something new, but it's not entirely foreign. So it's a place to have fun, but also probably pretty safe for him, too. And I think it really works really well in that regard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think this actually is one of the stronger tracks on the album. It is, as was my use of bullshit analogies, because I got many, many in there, probably too, too many. All right, and moving on then, yes, so it's another Suggs and Laroni composition. It's Straight Banana. I never ever see such a straight banana. <laughs> then Lori, we've talked about this one before i think we have so you know you've got the intro where it's sampling well it's not really sampling but it's the hall of the mountain king 
with like this scary computerized voice and, and, you know, singing the, the lyrics to the tune of the hall of the mountain King. It's, you know, this isn't bad. It's, it's fun. Um, I don't know that this is one of the stronger tracks on the album necessarily. I also think I might be getting a little stuck on the term straight banana. Cause when you talk about somebody being the straight banana, like for example, in a comedy, they're the foil, you know, they're the, they're the, the serious person that all of the jokes are either played off of or played on, you know? So uh, th- to me, I'm, uh, this is me getting hung up on that term. I don't know if it's being used correctly here. Let, let me, let me not completely clarify this for you because uh, I, th- I think they're borrowing a little bit lyrically from the, I don't even know if you'd call it a novelty song, but there was a song starting back in like, I, th- I think it was the, mid 20s called i've never seen a straight banana and it was a bit perennial so it started then and then and that was by a guy called ted Waite, and then it was um copied shortly after by wearings pennsylvanians i don't know if you've heard of them but they were sort of like one of the original um i wouldn't even call it a pop act pop by merit of them being popular in the first they're almost like one of the first chart toppers when they started um tracking things about recording so wearings pennsylvanians has this big portfolio and i've never seen straight bananas in that and um god uh jimmy edwards did it in the 60s and he's a bit like a the trailing end of vaudeville and then tiny tim did a version of it so Tiny Tim, at least then, certainly made a novelty song because everything he did was. But um, so the point of I've never seen a straight banana was very literal. You know, it was just because back then you just, you wrote anything, I guess, you know. Um, so when they say I've never seen a straight banana, you know, that, that robotic voice thing you're talking about, that's a line directly lifted from that song. So... I've set the stage there. They're borrowing an element from a super old song. Now, if you get into it lyrically a little bit, this is a bit like uh, a couple on a sailing adventure kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. It's really hard to it's really hard to get a take on it. So those two things right there more or less don't jive particularly well, you know. But Nonetheless, so you've got these two disparate elements happening, I think, and then just a really bouncy, bouncy beat and instrumentation. So it's, uh, doesn't the song in and of itself is a bit anachronistic. It doesn't, hmm. I don't know, it doesn't, none of it goes together, but it, but it works for me. I think it works really well. Maybe because it's just so weird like that. Well, knowing now what you've just said, uh, you use the word anachronism and that's a great word here. So, you know, for kind of hearkening back to vaudeville days, but then we have this updated synth technology that they're using and it becomes this kind of juxtaposition in old and new and everything old is new again. So, yeah. Okay. So, so I appreciate the song a little more now that you've explained it to me. So thank you. Hey, no problem. All right. So next one. It's a song that I think sounds a little bit more like madness to me. This is called Invisible Man, and it was written by Suggs with Mike Canaris and Boo 
Hewardine. background here. Mike Canaris had written a football song for Chelsea Blue Day, which is Suggs's team. And uh, Suggs appeared on that song. And that is what led to this collaboration. And as I understand it, there were actually a few songs that the three of them wrote and recorded some demos together, but most of them have not seen the light of day. So that's kind of interesting. What do you think of Invisible Man? Uh, I, I enjoy it. You know, it's it's got a different structure to a lot of, you know, the songs that, you know, Madness or Suggs have done. You know, it's got all the things we continue to talk about, um, you know, real um, strong melody, catchy chorus, on and on and on. Certainly has all that elements going for it. But there is not a proper, but like sort of like a slight half key change, I would call it maybe. Mm -hmm. um, mid uh, verse. Yeah. Which, which is really, really interesting. And let's face it, you know, Suggs is not like a really like a vocal juggernaut. But at that point, uh, 1998, because he, he works, you know, quite regularly with um, a vocal coach is, is my understanding, hmm. um, you know, and he had been at, at it for a while. So at that point, he might have been at the peak of, you know, his vocal ability. So he really handles that descending and, and ascending um, uh, uh, verses. So I think it makes it a really, really interesting song. You know, that's interesting that you point out that key change, because I didn't catch that. But yes, it's definitely there. And it really adds to the tension, I think, of the song. And I have in my notes that this song has a very like 1960s spy film vibe to it. Now, I just got done over the weekend watching the music of 007, that documentary. So maybe this is like, maybe I'm spy film on the brain, maybe. But it, it kind of has that kind of vibe to it, you know, with the guitar and everything. I like it. I really like the lyrics. Just like the pigeons in Trafalgar Square, he disappears in the air. I think that's so cool. So yeah, this is this is a really good one. It's really well written and um, and well performed too. Yeah, uh, another take on it. And and you know, I've said before on the podcast, I don't delve super deeply into lyrics. Um, nope, that's often. my my department. <laughs> that's your thing. But I almost consider the take not a spy take on it but like the invisible man like ellison like this was somebody who was um just not seen by society by merit of maybe being a street person or a homeless person or some such thing so i'm sticking my neck out there i'll probably after we're okay. done taping the podcast i'll go back and see if i can listen to see who's who's more right <laughs> okay all right all right, moving on to about halfway in the album, track number five. It is Sing. Oh, I'm 
meet you in the French house or bump into my mum. She'll be wearing orange caftan. His flies will be undone. We're drinking pink champagne, although it's going through the roof. And we scatter words to and fro across the truth. That we're all as sad as sadness. We're all as high as kites on our way to madness. On a sober ladies' night. We sing songs of longing. I smoke a huge cigar. I take you in my arms. then Lori lay it on me well it's interesting isn't it (laughs) it's interesting it has a very unusual like 30 second atmospheric synth intro there's a lot of guest musicians on this album I think I read that Ja Wobble from uh Public Image Limited played on most of the tracks and I feel like his bass comes through very strongly here you know but other than that this song is a mess. I don't know what this is. <laughs> yeah, it's and not very aptly named either because he's not <laughs> singing. He's doing this sort of quasi rap thing. Yeah, really cringy. It's kind of like, oh, it's like if you, you know, the drunk uncle at the wedding doing rap karaoke. It's, oh, my gosh. That is a really good you know, comparison. I didn't think about that. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. But there is one thing for you to love in it. What's that? Uh, there's a snippet in there. I don't even remember what the line of the song is because I, I just don't like the song particularly well. But there's an abstracted air appearing in the lyrics. Ooh. So that, you know, so there's a throwback or is it a throwback? Throw yes, forward? it is. Throw forward, yeah, to um, yeah, to Liberty of Norton Folgate. There are a couple places here on this album where I see little allusions to what would eventually become Norton Folgate, and I think yeah, that was definitely one of them. So, but that's the only redeeming quality yeah. of the song. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad I'm not the only one that thinks this. I'm listening to this and I'm just like, what the hell. All right, well, then moving on. The next song is called Girl, another one written by Suggs and Steve Laroni. And this one features English Raga DJ General Levy. Is it Levy or Levy? I think it's Levy. Okay. It's like a simple story of a boy who didn't hardly know how to enjoy his life. Too busy running down the street. think of girl okay so girl um 
I enjoy it. And this is probably, you know, after talking about So Tired, this is probably the most Manchester type song mm. on the album as well. Um, and uh, General Levy at that point was already a bit of a journeyman. So he had done quite a bit with, uh, you know, he. I think he had uh, by that point his, his own album in singles out that did reasonably well. I can't remember what they are. I was never like huge into him, but he was uh, guesting on just a ton of stuff. He worked with a ton of people, a lot of dub and dance hall producers. So no wonder he would fit in really, really well uh, on a song like this. It's a bit sort of not, I don't know, not, approved for 2022 post me too kind of it's a bit ogly of a song to be just talking about all the girls and blah 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 a blah, bit, blah. bit icky yeah you know but you know they wouldn't have been guilty of that i mean all of all of rock music and all of 80s you know metal was guilty of that yeah there was yeah decades of people dabbling in that particular theme so yeah um but you know whatever i still like it i think it's a great song yeah i like it too it, you know it reminds me of the soup dragons yeah yeah i can see that yeah i i like that suggs is experimenting with some of these guest artists particularly someone like general levy i know that i mean we saw this again when Madness recorded Sorry, which I think was like 2013 or 2014, where we had a couple of rap artists that guessed it on that. And that one didn't go over so big with the fans. The fans did not like that. But, you know, as early as 98, he was experimenting with that. And, you know, that is what my understanding of the two-tone ska movement was supposed to be about. The idea of white musicians, black musicians coming together they're different types of music blending to create something new. And I think that he successfully achieved that here. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. And, and, and I think most of um, the animus towards the song was just that, you know, by that point, if you're still a Madness fan, probably what you're viewing yourself as is a rock or a punk or a ska purist. Mm -hmm. And therefore you probably just, dislike rap altogether you know and so here's here's a sort of a quasi rap reggae take on a song you know well and that's really too bad because ska and rap kind of come from the same place as far as you know the the I guess to use the term, the dregs of society, right? The underclass. This is the the voice of the disaffected, right? This is sure, the sound yeah. of the streets. And just because, you know, one originated in Jamaica and one originated like, I guess, New York, you know, but I mean, it's the same, it's the same issues. It's the same underclass, you know what I mean? That, yeah, yeah. that and uh yeah, it's really a shame that that there aren't more people that are open-minded in that respect, you know? Yeah, heard. I mean, I, I, I will I will admit that um, I think it takes a lot to, uh, and, and, and I guess maybe using the term rap 
because uh, mm-hmm. that's not really, really what General Levy was doing there, kind of. He was doing more hype man stuff, I guess, than than rap. But um, but um, but uh, anyways, I had a very uh, intelligent point, and I couldn't remember it. <laughs> okay, well, if you think of it, let me know, and I'll edit it back in. What do we got next? All right. So again, it's Suggs and Laroni. Uh, they wrote the greatest show on earth. to circus themes with Suggs, don't we? I think so. Yeah, you're not yeah, wrong. Yeah, House of Fun. There were, gosh, what was the other one? Yeah, there, there's a few songs that they've done that have this kind of circusy theme that they meaning madness now. The only thing that I had scribbled down as I was, I was really listening to the lyrics on this, the greatest show on earth. Yes, it's a vicious cabaret. You've all got your part to play. And I like that. You know, the Vicious Cabaret, that actually would be a great name for a band. Hello, we're Vicious Cabaret. <laughs> no? No, I'd go see that. That's All cool. right. All right. What do you think of uh, The Greatest Show on Earth? Uh, I, I do like it. Um, you know, it's got the elements that uh, I maybe anybody, unless you're, this is the first time you're listening, which I kind of find that doubtful. Uh, everybody knows uh, I like something really, really hooky. And this does have that, but it's very strange where it goes from, um, you know, starting out with a reggae beat and then transitioning into something that, and if anybody was going to find this contentious, uh, this would probably be it. But uh, it goes from sort of a reggae beat and switching into I, I, what I consider an Oasis style chorus. Mm. So, Britpop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, right, sure. Britpop would probably be better because I I can see that there had been um, elements of uh, this type of chorus in a lot of the Blur stuff too. So yeah, totally. Um, so in that way, I don't think it flows as, as well as it could have, but um, I still like it. Okay. Well, next up we have, this is a fun one, our man. Pushing his pen across the page To nowhere in particular He's dreaming of his holidays His stomach's perpendicular He tried to keep his keep it interest But the summer's nearly
another one written by Suggs and Steve Laroni. What do you think of our man? Um, it's fine. So now I think you could say we've got like three examples of uh, Suggs kind of going off script and really doing something different. Although Madness by this point had dabbled in doing things that were, you know, uh, American Roots-ish style music, you know, so it's not like completely off script. But here we've got, you know, Suggs doing uh, sort of New Orleans rag, you know, so... I mean, it's all right. It's clever, you know, and it sounds good. But uh, I'm always wary of things that um, stand out too, too much in an album. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, this wasn't exactly like this was a um, album that was so cohesive that it couldn't couldn't bear something a little different like that. Mm -hmm. OK, so first you mentioned the. New Orleans Rag. Well, that is the Chris Barber band. They're a, a jazz band and they were featured artists on this song. I think it has kind of a vaudeville feel to it, especially with the clarinet and the banjo. And Polly, I know you do not like the banjo. So anytime there's a banjo in a song, I know that you're probably not going to be a fan. Yeah. I mean, I could go the rest of my life and not listen to the song and be fine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, you know, for what it's worth, they did a good, they, for what they were achieving, hoping to achieve, they in fact did a fine job at it. You know, I, I like the, the retro flourishes in this album, not just the song, but you know, some of the other songs as well. And I see some parallels between this and what the band would later do on Can't Touch Us Now. I think there's more of this kind of vibe to it, you know, the vaudevillian kind of uh, atmosphere Maybe not specifically clarinet and banjo. Now, there was a line on this song that I'm kind of, I put a question mark next to. He's eating all his edibles. Now, I'm trying to think back to 1998. I know in 2022, when you talk about edibles, you're talking about THC, right? You're going down to the marijuana dispensary and you're getting some edibles, you know, with, with THC. Was that even a thing in 1998 or is he actually re literally referencing food? He's literally referencing food. Although edibles would have been a thing in 1998, it wouldn't have, the vernacular wouldn't have been widespread enough for it to have made it all its way to Suggs. That's kind of what I was thinking too, but it's still kind of fun to hear it and think of that meaning for it. It just, it changes the song a little bit. Okay. All right. What's next? <laughs> All right. So up next, that would be on drifting sand. That's
All right then, Lori. Oh, I like this one. I like I, I like yeah, anything. I thought you would. I like anything that kind of harkens back to any kind of Egyptian or you know Middle Eastern vibe. Uh, not just because my profile picture on Facebook right now is the year I dressed as Cleopatra, which is still my favorite Halloween costume of all time. But uh, Suggs even yells at the beginning of the song, dance Cleopatra dance, which later on he would start doing during live performances of Nightboat to Cairo. Uh, and do you know where he would have gotten that from? Dance Cleopatra dance. Uh, Mark, Mark Anthony, Julius Caesar. I don't know. You tell me. So that's a mid-career album by Prince Buster. Oh, okay. That that puts it in a different perspective, doesn't it? Yep. Ah, so I love the lyrics. I'll be a raggedy king with a rusty crown. My queen Cleopatra when the sun goes down. Always there, but never stay on drifting sand. You know, the elusive dream that's always just out of reach on shifting sand what do you think of on drifting sand uh well uh you know for all the things you said and more i i think it's a great success for the album mm -hmm. um i don't want to copy anything you just said but um here is something i'm not going to say it's experimental because uh this is reminiscent of quite a few things that Suggs had done in his career by then but um but still, you know, fresh, still original. Uh, lyrically, like you said, it's got a lot going for it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, another safe thing, but um, it's also something that I think really kind of delivers the goods. I mean, nobody, nobody uh, beat up on Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron for continuing to hit it into left field, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, so this is, this is more of, I, I think, a gift to, uh, fans who want something, uh, very Suggs-esque. Yeah. You know, I think these last couple of tracks and then the next one that we're about to hear, you can really hear a lot of the inspiration coming from Suggs's childhood experiences. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more with, uh, with the Three Pyramids Club next. As we had mentioned in our episode about Suggs, his mother was a, uh, a jazz club singer and she was a single mother. So he spent a lot of his childhood, you know, just hanging out in the jazz clubs while his mom was performing. I mean, it's not like she would have a sitter. And so a lot of that environment, I think, was uh, very much an influence on him musically. If you can kind of picture the Three Pyramids Club as being, you know, like one of these jazz clubs in Soho that, you know, his mother would play at, then all of these different musical influences, all of these international influences, you know, the uh, New Orleans jazz, the uh, Egypt and, and, you know, circus and all of this stuff just kind of gets melted together into this really interesting I don't know, kind of like smoky, seedy club sound. You know what I mean? The whole album, I think, is is kind of building that. You know, it's not like any one individual song. But when you kind of look at the album in that way, I think it kind of puts a different perspective on things. But I think particularly the last couple of songs and then the next one that we're going to hear, I think we really get that kind of 
Soho jazz club vibe, you know? And moving on to that next song, then it is the title track. It's the Three Pyramids Club. Right then, Lori. Three Pyramids Club. I like it. Um, I, I I know I said in a previous episode, it kind of reminded me of, uh, gosh, I don't remember the name of it now, but in the third Mummy film, you know, there were the three films with Brendan Fraser <laughs> and there's that uh, nightclub that Jonathan opens that's like an Egyptian themed nightclub. And that's what this, this reminds me of, you know, uh, like a, the British guy opening a, an Egyptian themed club. And I, I could totally see Suggs walking out on stage at that club and, and performing this song. It would not be out of place. Yeah. I, so I think uh, you're on to something there, you know, it, between the imagery on the album, uh, which admittedly does have three pyramids, but um, you know, more Suggs in that uh, I don't know if it's seersucker or cotton linen suit, Suggs in a linen suit. Uh, and wearing the fez, which is a nice homey touch, let's face it, for Suggs. Uh, yeah, this has a bit of a Casablanca feel. It's got that um, hearkening back a bit to uh, the seedy, smoky, black and white film era and something that yeah. um, I think we all feel, but I think in particular, you know, probably Brits feel is that um, the the upside to colonialism would i say maybe that that we've traveled everywhere we've you know we've uh we've become comfortable all over the place kind of and um that's kind of what i think of is this a faraway club somewhere where only rap scallions and gangsters and 'er ne'er-do-wells hang out okay so the three pyramids club selks has said is an imaginary establishment but it was loosely inspired by one of those exotic Soho clubs where his mother used to perform called the Kismet Club. Now, also worth noting in this song is the violin, and that is Levine Andrade. He was an Indian-born British musician and conductor. Very, very famous. So we had a lot of um, uh, notable guests on this particular album. That brings us to the end of the album, Polly. Oh, no. Oh, no. Any other parting thoughts before I ask you your favorite and least favorite track? Well, you know, people did not take to this album in 1998. Yeah. And um, I think it's a real shame. Um, but thinking, I know the answer to everything. I also think I know why. And, and I think it's like we talked about earlier that... Um, 
you know, Madness fans can kind of become purists. They're fickle. Yeah, and they want Suggs in Madness, and they're not particularly accepting of um, him branching out on his own. Now, that being said, this came out in 1998, would have made myself 28, probably most Madness fans between 28 and 33 or something like that. And um, probably at that, uh, I don't know, <laughs> that, that, ang- that angry age of, uh, you know, being mid-career and uh, uh, starting to not be out every single night of the week and that, you know, probably still very anxious or rather very um, nostalgic for what they were doing the decade before, you know? So it wouldn't surprise me that so many people were going, oh, I don't want this. And, oh, he's just copying Happy Mondays. And uh, Whereas in recent years, I've taken a somewhat more, I would call it pragmatic view of let your, you know, let your favorites, let your heroes find a way to please you somehow. Allow them to try to do that, you know. Um, I I don't remember this in 1998. It was probably closer to 2004 when I started to sort of have my second phase of madness where I got really intensely into it, um, which is when I heard this. And uh, I was kind of a medium on it then, but it's continued to grow on me. And I would actually say at this point, I'm a real fan of the album. Okay. You know, I... I didn't hear it. I think the first time I, I heard it maybe would have been like 2016 or 2017. So it was already well past its prime by the time I'd heard it. It's hard for me to kind of place it in the context of its time of 1998. Cause I'm trying to think what was happening musically in 98 grunge was starting to lose its momentum was starting to slow down. Same with like Madchester, the, the bands that were really on the rise other than, you know, like the new metal, you know, which eh, we won't even talk about that. But on their side of the Atlantic, I mean, it was really kind of blur and oasis ascending, you know, it was that whole Brit pop vibe. And I suspect from things that I've read that the record label kind of wanted to paint Suggs with that same brush. Oh, he's British. He's pop. You know, he should do Brit pop. And that was never going to be who Suggs was, you know? And I think, I think some of it is also maybe even a failure of marketing. I mean, how do, how do you classify this album? I mean, it's got some reggae influences, but it's definitely not ska. It's not rock, you know, it, it, it's got some elements in common with Baggy or Madchester, but it's definitely not that either. So you know, kind of what you were saying, right? Like the, the Suggs fans, the Madness fans, this is not what they were accustomed to from him. So you can't really put it in that box. So who is, who's their audience? You know, who's going to buy this? And that is not to be disparaging of the album at all. I, I, I personally think that artists should create for the sake of creating. And I'm all for experimentation and blending new sounds and trying new things. But I'm just saying in terms of why I think this album was, I mean, let's face it, it was a flop. I think that that might be part of the reason why. 
Yeah, possibly. But, you know, uh, Suggs at his best, you know, really, you know, ever only wrote, you know, it's a team uh, for, for Madness songs. True. So, um, you know, he was he was not going to be constructing intricate or dynamic songs on his own. Right. So, you know, uh, they had to try something and it was going to be uh, vastly influenced by whatever his partnership was. In this case, it was Laroni. So, yeah, it wasn't wasn't Barson. It wasn't Tomo. So it was going to sound how it was going to sound in spite of, you know, Suggs being the guy singing. Right, right, right. So now I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite track and what's your least favorite track? And you hate when I do this. I do. However, this this time around, it's actually really pretty easy. Um, and I don't think I run the risk of offending anybody by saying uh, that Sing is a colossal turd. So, um, yeah, so not exactly sticking my neck out there um where people may disagree with me is i'm just gonna say straight banana is the best song on the album okay i agree with you on sing but you know i'm i'm vacillating between invisible man and three pyramids club but i think i'm gonna go with invisible man as the strongest song there so that brings us to the end of another episode. Uh, we actually decided, listeners, that we're going to do something a little bit unusual and that we're going to have two closing songs this week. So I Am, as we mentioned, was released as a single. And there were two B-sides. So one of them was called Same Again, which was co-written with Nick Feldman who we mentioned previously, Wang Chung's Nick Feldman. And he also uh, plays keyboards and backing vocals uh, on this one. And then the other one was It Really Would Be Nice, which was written by Boo Hewardine, who also co-wrote Invisible Man. So these are two very different sounding songs, two very, very different uh, moods that they create. But uh, we'd like to leave you with both of those, especially since I'd never heard these prior to last night. That's the first time I'd ever even heard these songs. Had you heard these before, Polly? Uh, I've never heard It Really Would Be Nice. Oh. So, no, I had heard Same Again before, but no. Okay. Well, so it's we'll... new to me, too. All right. Fantastic. So we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. That we will. I have no idea what we're doing. Do you know? I don't think we figured that out yet. <laughs> <laughs> we will we will um but on that note it's a goodbye for me and that's a goodbye for me go get a beer stateside madness the backs of broken houses past the noble rose sweeper sweeping the leaves out of the drain i'm trying to look normal in a world of normal people is it just me or does everything Now I'm outside in the pouring rain I didn't mean to but I've done it again Or does it always have to end the Drowned. Come
Keep it. 
Come. 